Hello and welcome to another episode of the Diaspora Collective podcast, where we dissect and explore contemporary events in news and pop culture and how they pertain to Black communities' experience of race. Today I'm joined by... Delilah. And Dominique. In this episode, we are going to speak about the Golden Globes nomination saga, where I made a story was snubbed for a nomination in favour of Emmeline Paris. We'll be linking this to deconstructing the concept of working twice as hard to get half as far, as well as concepts like separatism. Unfortunately, Abra isn't here for this recording, but we're just going to send her lots of love. We're missing her dearly. So it's just me, Del and Dominique. And on that note, how is everybody doing? It's just the air signs today, which means it's probably <laughs> going to be more chaos, less structure. <laughs> Um, more rambling thoughts than usual because Abba isn't here to be <laughs> our foundation <laughs> to keep our conversation making sense. And it makes sense anyway. Um, how was everybody's Sunday? What did we all do apart from take a daily walk? I didn't even take a daily walk. I did like life admin. I really did not do my like Sunday organization. <laughs> it's going to come back and bite me in the ass. Literally by Tuesday, my week is going to be in the pits, breaking down because I haven't, <laughs> I haven't taken the time to organize anything. I just How cooked a lovely roast. I made a rhubarb crumble that did go wrong. There was like liquid all over the top, so it was kind of soggy. But you know the flavor was the same, <laughs> and that's all that counts. <laughs> you know that's so funny. Like when parents are just like, it's gonna look the same. <laughs> like when something doesn't look nice and they want you to eat it, they're like, it's all the same once once it's in your stomach. <laughs> that was my attitude. I was literally laughing at it whilst I was looking in the oven. Like this has gone really wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! It's probably fair to say the recipe was. Um, no structure, all vibes. Probably like <laughs> this conversation is gonna go. <laughs> no, I feel like we've got a very comprehensive, uh, big topic to discuss today. So, yeah, should be a lot that comes out of this conversation, I think, for us and also obviously everybody else who's listening as well. So, the whole saga that has led to us having this conversation was essentially the Golden Globes snubbing um, I May Destroy Destroy You in favour of Emily in Paris uh, for a nomination and it just got us thinking and we started talking about why why do black people have to work twice as hard to get just as far or half as far Um, so just wanted to say that as a precursor to this conversation. we then started thinking about how that whole working twice as hard links to access to opportunities um, and also um, how it links to institutional issues. So like the way that institutions recognize excellence um, and the way that awards are given. I mean, hopefully most people have watched I May Destroy You by now, um, or at least a couple episodes if you haven't. I highly recommend you do watch it I think symbolically and like in terms of the time that we're in a lot of the stuff that has kind of come out of a lot of like the chaos and the movements that have occurred over the past I'd say like five years I think it really puts it all into context in terms of how that 
um, plays out on a day-to-day like life so I think it is a really symbolic thing for anybody to watch but um, we can give like a little bit of a synopsis I know Dom you wanted to give a little bit of a synopsis for us to frame exactly why <laughs> we are so shocked that it didn't get any awards at the Golden Globes um, so yeah I'll hands over to you to do that. A quick note, if you've not seen I May Destroy You, uh, the way that I interpreted the series was visual storytelling by Michaela Cole, um, and I thought it was really insightful, critical, and really relatable. Basically a story about the aftermath of um, sexual assault, and I thought it touched on uh, concepts like consent as a spectrum, and also related experiences like victim blaming, exploitation and gaslighting. I think also it spoke about experiences related to the full spectrum of sexual assault. Um, So from the most violent uh, forms of sexual assault to everyday experiences of assault that are considered not as bad or not thought of as sexual violence uh, in the same way as more violent um, acts. And yeah, I think what I really liked about this series was that it showed so many, like the three main black characters um, in a deep layered and multifaceted way. So for example, um, Arabella, who is Michaela's character, she was doing yoga, she went to therapy, um, she engaged in recreational drug use, um, and she was this well-traveled black creative. And I think this really counteracts the frequent monolithic portrayals of black characters in TV and media. Um, So I think that was a really great, like, as a standard or like the baseline is why it was really good let alone the fact that it was tackling like really really difficult issues I think the symbolic importance of it is just like it can't be overstated I think particularly because I think the whole like Me Too movement kind of got usurped by white feminism unfortunately as things really progressed and it's it's important for people to remember like it was black women's voices that really began that movement and really um really started that movement so for me it was like now I think when we when there's a lot of sexual assault narratives depicted in um media and stuff unfortunately there's there's been an erasure I think of like how um, all sorts of women experience sexual assault and the different ways that they go through it. Um, And also I think that like her access to therapy was really needed at this moment. I think when we did our medical racism episode, we spoke a lot about the impacts of racism in terms Mm. of mental health provision um, and how um, black black, um, individuals, but especially black women are more likely to be sectioned um, but have the least access to therapy and I think it was like it was a great reminder for people within the black community to access therapy obviously it's harder for us but that it is okay um, to seek those services and I think seeing her go to like black therapists I'm not saying that if you need therapy it has to be a black person but I think we've spoken about how much racism mm-hmm. intersects your experience of everything and that that includes health service provision so just the way that the conversations were structured and nuanced it was like 
a really good active reminder I think for any black viewers um that accessing mental health support doesn't always have to be hostile because and it doesn't always have to feel alien and there doesn't always have to be shame within it so I think it was really really important we all know like the the mental health spike that's occurred during COVID-19 um, and lockdown restrictions I think that part of it was really needed as well not just obviously the really important messages about how um um survivors of sexual assault like how much they have to go through but also reminders of people to take sexual assault seriously in all forms of assault and I think the last thing I want to say is just like the shattering of the like strong black women narrative because I think you yeah. spoke about Dom about how um um Pachel was always so monolithic and I think what was really nice is that we know that black women go through trauma it was just refreshing for the narrative of the trauma not to be based around that not to be mm -hmm. based around like look how strong she is like she's just like a black woman getting on with it but it was a like a real portrayal so humanizing of the black identity like some of the things you saw her do you wouldn't even mm -hmm. see black women do on tv normally like some like the, the that sounds stupid but like the hygiene routines and stuff like that like a mm -hmm. lot of the time the depictions of us just aren't humanizing they miss out all of the small little things things that make people look human on tv and just focus on all of like the bigger things that make us seem more of like a like a fantasy structure kind of thing so I think it was fantastic I think it was fantastic that it was like Michaela Cole's agency not only did she star in it but she wrote it that's like double the burden as well but obviously we'll get onto that part but yeah, for me, that's just why I was just, I was so shocked. Like I was so shocked. Like she did like nothing in it really got recognized by the Golden Globes. Also like Arabella's character's role of like trailblazing her own pathway was also mirrored by Michaela Cole's actual backstory that I May Destroy You. She mm -hmm. turned down a 1 million deal mm -hmm. with Netflix. I think she had like 0.5% of the rights or something to her own show. Oh, so she, I, remem it I remember this really bad. recently. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, so she turned it down, left her agency after it came out. They were taking a secret cut behind her back and then managed to keep her all the rights and everything and went forward with the series with BBC and HBO. So even that in itself, obviously that, that doesn't equal a good portrayal on TV or equal a good TV show, but it just shows like from the off, it was mm. authentic, it was original, it's come from a black woman's like soul, which I think really came across on camera mm -hmm. as well. Shall we, do we give Emily in Paris her two minutes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've done a pretty comprehensive reflection on I May Destroy You. Um, I think it's only fair to, to maybe give some thoughts <laughs> on Emily in Paris. <laughs> I have, sh like, it is my guilty pleasure, the fact that I've watched it three times, just for dissociation value. Seek help three times. Three? Yeah. I respect it. If I you mean, like something, you enjoy No, it. it's not even that. It's just... I don't even know what it is. I've got nothing. I can't even justify it. Um, I think a lot of it was just like having it on in the background or just having something like mindless, you know, that like something that you only need to give 30% mm. of your attention and then mm, it, like yeah. you can still follow the story. Real yeah. house vibes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know about or what you all have read about 
um, the series. But I do think there was such a missed opportunity for the writing there. Like there were certain concepts about race, yeah. like ra- racial tensions in Paris and France that were just missed. Mm-hmm. Um, it could have been quite impactful, but it just wasn't. Um, and even the writer in her um, column about why she thought I May Destroy You should have got the uh, Golden Globe nom- nomination. She even like, oh, I definitely could see how a show about white Americans selling luxury whiteness in a pre-pandemic Paris scrubbed free of its vibrant African and Muslim communities might rankle. Like she acknowledges it for herself, but it's like, but you wrote it. So do you not have a responsibility to to do something about it? I disturbingly really enjoy it, but I think I enjoy it for the same reasons as you, Dominique. Like it's just it's so like it's so blatantly like ignorant almost childlike in its mm. like like depiction of stories that it just doesn't feel real so it, when you're watching it it does feel like you've suspended reality for like half an hour like if you mm. really don't want to think about anything <laughs> to do with real life you can watch it like even with the colors and stuff like that but I do think like it's like the ignorance level in it just makes it like if you're trying to think critically or for it to have any symbolic value just makes it so hard and I agree with you around especially like the the depictions of people of color within the within the films like Mindy who's her new best friend I think she's like Chinese or she's Southeast Asian um and then there's like Julian who is black but obviously they fall into like the standard side character mm-hmm. roles yeah. like Julian is typecast as like the gay sassy black man we've had so many depictions of that mm-hmm. and yes that is that is an identity and there's nothing wrong with that but like it just felt so dated in the way that they approached identity like even Emily as a woman working in the industry if you compare her like um the portrayal of her working day to like Arabella's in I May Destroy You even before it got to the seriousness of like her sexual assault I related to like the way she was working so much like you know when she was trying to write her book and then she was like ways to like how can you write a book in like 30 seconds and it was like she put timers on and then she just like so distracted I was like that's me that's me in the office whereas like Emily I think like the first day she got a brief and it was supposed to be like wasn't it for like vaginal like um, yeah cream or something yeah and instead of like a real a realistic portrayal of like her using her brain to overcome that she might not have been given a brief that she expected, she just like accidentally finds like a really great slogan. And like everything in the show <laughs> where she does well, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, she's it's an accident. She just falls into it kind of thing. And I'm like, are we not past that portrayal of women? Like women have brains they can come up with creative things cognitively. It doesn't have to be an accident that she comes up with a brainwave. And like all the people she meets are supposed to be like directors and like big business owners and stuff like that are all white. And the only the only like really like groundbreaking people you see in their careers are like when she when there's like those two designers, one of them's black and he mm-hmm. steals designs and he owns a streetwear brand. I'm like, oh well, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it's just so- urban. It's urban. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, of course, the one black designer has to be urban. Like, come on, is this not 2020? Do better. Do better. And for me, the whole thing was just so frustrating because, like Dom said, I think they missed a trick of being like, 
she steps into Paris she might not be very clued up about culture she might have started off really ignorant but then they could have done so much to change that journey Mm. like really like delve into like the character's identity like Julian speaking about the difficulties of being in Paris where if you're black they expect you to be French before you're black Mm -hmm. um and then there's all those issues with identity like with Mindy all of that and the last thing I want to say is that it's supposed to be about her finding love and she didn't have a single non-white love interest in the whole first season despite having five different men around her and everywhere she goes there's no one else but white people so for me the whole thing was just like is this just this weird fantasy land of what white yeah. people want the world to be like, where anyone who isn't white is like a secondary character mm-hmm. and all the main characters. It's just, yeah, it just felt so outdated, like how TV was when we were younger and we're trying so hard to move away from that. Mm. Yeah, that's the end of my rant on Emily and Paris. Sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah. Let it um. all out. <laughs> also, like, there was already controversy of the way they depicted French culture. Mm-hmm. because they like to picture them as t- cheaters they didn't work all day they were lazy had no work ethic there was a myriad of reasons basically so even <laughs> within like white culture they haven't even portrayed that correctly so I feel like for us to expect them to even look at us twice is just it's beyond their pay grade obviously so obviously <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's the thing like for um, I May Destroy you there were definitely way more relatable moments and I think the reason why Emily in Paris was so like uh, like it was such a facilitator for dissociation basically (laughs) was because I was like none of this would ever happen to me sorry it doesn't make sense she's just moved to Paris every day she's wearing Chanel but you're telling me that she's like (laughs) she's a mid-tier marketing manager (laughs) Make I need to work for that company. Literally. Anyway, I think we need to move beyond. Yeah, <laughs> beyond Emily. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the thing is, the wildest thing is like what Mel said is that like you have a product that has received so much critical acclaim, and even before we get to the nominees, everybody has agreed. Okay, Emily in Paris is fun, but it's problematic as hell. So like, it's just really like frustrating to get to award season, even if you take race out of the occasion on the merit of quality. It's just frustrating to see something where the art has clearly been taken seriously. The narratives are there, the research are there, the depiction is there and people publicly hold it up compared to something that everybody like even people white people the people that wrote it are like Mm -hmm. yeah we get it it's problematic so like how do we get to the point where when it comes to massive award shows and hallmarks of quality are we in this situation so I think that's what we need to unpack because yeah it's very wild (laughs) I was I was gonna I mean my counter question to to that would be do you think it's about race um in a very devil's advocate kind of way do you think it's about race (laughs) if this one incident happened in isolation you could say not but I just think like considering it's it's like a systemic problem it happens every award show we're pretty much in this situation kind of thing I think for me it was just like normally the quality is just not so vast (laughs) I I was like you could have at least picked Mm. something in the same category as I May Destroy You where it wouldn't be so blatant 
um that there are contributing factors I'm not saying that like that is like the main reason but I think it 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 obviously plays in and the reason I think it plays in is because of the way these these awards are given out and they're done by boards and then when you Mm. look up the makeup of the boards and also isn't it like Daniel Starr who did Sex in the City who wrote Emily in Paris Mm. yeah like now is like writer yeah yeah at this like untouchable level kind of thing um and is like a white male I think there's just so many like factors where you just are like okay this is off and there's no way that at least power dy- dynamics or like being palatable doesn't play into it but like I just don't know how there could have been so much complaint and yet it I don't know mm. I find it really hard to take it take it out of the equation I really do I think it is definitely part of the equation and I definitely think it has like a part to play in this but also just like companies like what was that makeup brand Tarte who used who didn't issue any darker uh tones of foundation I feel like the Golden Globes maybe use this to give some more oomph to their um award shows because no one was really talking about them before now everybody's talking about it. like people use controversy as a way of marketing so this mm-hmm. could just be a really clever marketing point especially because the writer in Emily in Paris is so influential anyway no one in that kind of area is going to stand up to him, I imagine. I feel like we've we've had a really good year of black art. And I was thinking, why is it so frustrating for me? Like, um, the the oh also somebody said that like the golden globes should be called the snow globes because they do this every <laughs> <Yeah>. year. <laughs> but I think it's because we've we've had a year of like really defining black cinematic and filmography pieces like we've had like Lovecraft Country, um, Insecure, Bridgerton, Acts of Colour, Small Acts, all of Mm. that stuff came out last year so and in a period where we've had a movement where people are saying like not just black narratives but the narratives of people who are oppressed are so important and stories where you have Uh, people of those identities behind the screens which a lot of these shows do have like uh the five bloods is like spike lee like you have people really write writing and creating really strong narratives um and this year their percentage in uh, the golden globes was 18.6 percent of all acting nominees went to bipoc people so that's black indigenous people of color which i mean we don't use really like those terms Mm. but um and obviously that's a homogenous term for race so 18.6 of black or indigenous or people of color for acting in a year where we've had so many big products where there are a whole array of people acting and behind the scenes like it just doesn't make sense to me like how you might not think this one situation of Emily in Paris and um, I made a story is about race but for me it's like the more we create black art we should really be seeing the statistics go up and disturbingly that is an increase (laughs) from the previous Mm -hmm. years which is shocking but yeah the whole thing is just like it's not moving how it should do for the amount of really high quality as well high quality black stories that are being created oh okay (laughs) <laughs> I had to come with the numbers that was she she brought the stats and the receipt like i'd actually quite like to pivot the conversation back to peeling the layers back on what it means to work twice as hard 
and where that has come from I think it'd be really good to start off there now that we've given our, our overarching thoughts mm-hmm. on on the um on what's happened basically I just feel like it's an ingrained part of black culture almost every single person who I Mm -hmm. know who is black has been told that at least I'd say five times in their lives by their parents or other family members Mm -hmm. friends anybody and even I was I was reading up on it a bit before this episode and it was even part of Michelle Obama's speech Mm-hmm. when she went to I think it's called Tuskegee mm-hmm. University which is like a historically black uh, college in America so it kind of just shows how deeply embedded it really is you know like we know it across the pond and we're just the average black girls she is like I don't know the former first lady in America and even she knows she had to work twice as hard but I feel it's really problematic. I mean, it's good in some ways because I feel like it does encourage everyone to work hard, which I think is important. However, it doesn't address the hurdles really that are in the way, you know, the mm-hmm. systemic hurdles and failures also that prevent us from getting twice as far as our white peers. And also, I don't know, it kind of like knocks a black person's confidence before they've even started. You already know you're on the bottom rung of the ladder. Like, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that necessarily, like, knowing that you do have to work hard. However, I just feel like you always feel like you're catching up to your white peers, even though you are, might be doing better work. You might be working a bit harder. So I don't know mm. how I feel about it really being used with, like, our generation and the generations after us, to be honest. I don't know. It's really difficult for me because I, I think I'm, I think I'm of the opposite opinion of Mel, where I think I would find it really difficult to, to have a child. And I think we, we talk about children because, like you said, the home is like the place that you experience that narrative the most. But I think the thing is because it is propped up by like structural experience in terms of things like pay. So like um, I think the most recent stats were black workers whose highest qualifications our A-levels earn 10% less than their white peers and black workers with degrees face a 14% pay gap, £2.63 an hour, I think, compared to um, like their white counterparts with um, the same degrees. So I think it's really difficult to, obviously you don't want to subscribe to that narrative because I think it places a really heavy burden on a black individual to think everything I do, I'm going to be have to be working. So if I experience burnout, if I experience like stress, Mm -hmm. then it's all Mm -hmm. part of what I have to accept to move forward. I think that's the dangerous part of it, but I think it's really hard to escape that narrative in reality. And I think that's why we get it taught so much. Um, and I think the the stat that like brought it home for me the most in terms of how I relate it was um, like in the US, black women are the most highly educated and the mm. lowest paid. So if you think about it, you don't really have a choice, right? You could be like, I'm not going to pay my way, get myself through debt and stuff. But if without doing those things, you're not even going to earn the minimum wage, 
how are you meant to survive? And I think in terms of like, at least black African culture, at least the biggest thing, the reason your parents teach you is because they want you to succeed. But we have less options. I think it's either you succeed or you fail because we don't have that same space in the middle as maybe some of our white counterparts do. Like, you know, like Jeff Bezos (laughs) and stuff. They have room to fail. You have a privilege to fail. If you don't go to university and if you don't get job experience, somebody might know somebody, somebody might be able to fund something for you for our parents and I think for us we don't have those opportunities if you don't do these things there's no other options for you so I think it's really hard to to escape I think and I think um, there was a really interesting article I wrote I think it's called um, it's by Heidi Safa Mirza I think race gender and um, educational desire and it's all about why even though a lot of the time for black women our degrees might not get us where we want to but why we think it's so important to have access to education and it is because like we don't really have any other options like how else do we prop ourselves up in society Mm. um so yeah I think it's a bit of a a catch-22 as we previously Mm. like using that term I think it's just about the fact that it doesn't do anything to address uh, the systemic oppression that black people face it just forces us to overwork ourselves in the same framework of oppression without doing anything about the framework so essentially the onus is just on the person and I think that's where it becomes really problematic but I also think it's problematic in the sense that you can't escape it the other thing that I is really important it's like for a community or communities that that statistically don't address mental health issues it's just a narrative that increases the incidence of of mental health issues yeah I think I think so I get what you mean because then it automatically you're it's a the burden is already there right kind of thing Mm -hmm. for me the most important thing is how do you frame the concept of needing to work twice as hard because do you frame it as a reality of the society that we're in opposed to an individual expectation based on your identity so it's not because you're black that you have to work twice as hard it's because you live in a world where black people are oppressed and they're devalued that Mm. they have to work twice as hard so although you have to function like that it's not your responsibility and it doesn't absolve the people who build the world that you live in of the responsibility to fix that for you. Um, and I think that it goes back to like th- talking about awards, like, well, should we even bother putting mm-hmm. our work in to places that don't recognize the value of our work? If we know that even if we put out the most amazing piece, we are probably going to not get the recognition we deserve, but, at the end of the day, it's all about black people being valued, isn't it? And mm-hmm. we deserve the same markers of value as everybody else. So for me, if I have to work twice as hard to get the same pay as my white male counterpart, I still deserve that pay. I'm going to work hard to get that pay. But at the same time, I should feel comfortable being vocal about why does my workplace feel comfortable to underpay me as yeah. a black woman? Uh, unionize and do the stuff I need to do <laughs> and make sure that other people around me who have more power to change that take responsibility for that um 
so I think it's the same thing with like the Oscars and the Golden Globes it's difficult for us because we have things like the MOBOs and the BET awards that exist because we've been alienated from those spaces Mm -hmm. and our workload hasn't been valued but at the same time it's not the be all and end all but it's still the highest do you know what I mean it's still the Mm -hmm. highest concept of what it means to be an actor or a filmmaker so to not have access to that is also completely like devaluing to our identity I think what we need to get to is like we need to get away from like liberation from that concept that places a responsibility on us but still push for the world to recalibrate like Mm -hmm. we should have our own spaces if you want to work for like a black owned company because you're going to get paid better great if you want to work in an industry where you're going to have to fight your way through great but don't allow them don't allow that to be the legacy of your career within that space kind of thing um so yes we should have our own award shows we should create our own spaces but at the same time we shouldn't stop working hard and forcing like the oppressors to create more inclusive spaces because it's still like black people still deserve social mobility and if I don't put my work in for an Oscar how many opportunities am I not being able to get because unfortunately the world is framed by the markers of like success and they're framed Mm -hmm. by whiteness so I could get like a different award thing that's framed by black people but unfortunately people like think the Oscar's better than everything else so it's difficult Mm -hmm. because we have to learn how to function in both those spaces yeah I was just gonna say about you know what you said about unionizing um and like doing the work to deconstruct these systems is that what is meant by twice as hard it's like not only do you have to do your job but you have to like do all of these other things to facilitate a pathway to success or is it purely the fact that like you have to be excellent like what does working twice as hard actually mean in like tangible terms but I think the comments that you made about essentially like separatism um separating yourself from these institutions is I don't know it's difficult because it's like yes we do have those spaces like you mentioned BET and like the MOBO awards and stuff but that doesn't stop the Grammys the Oscars the Tony awards from existing like they still exist like it does nothing to break them Mm -hmm. down in terms of Mm -hmm. the systemic oppression that they are um like perpetuating so yeah I think I mean I read this in it's a book called Back to Black and it's about black radicalism in the 21st century. But essentially, yeah, it's like the desire for separation has typically been seen as a radical alternative to integration uh, into the existing society. But advocating emigration from a Western nation state is not necessarily radical because it does not always involve an overturning of the existing social order. Yeah, and I think that's like exactly what it does with... Um, like not submitting your work yeah so basically you cannot engage but it will still exist is the gist of that quote and I think that really stands as I think the defining concept of everything that we're really talking about because 
we need our own spaces where we know without a doubt like our work is going to be recognized without that double burden kind of thing but the spaces where we're not like valued still need to become more inclusive at the same time like it shouldn't be one or the other those those spaces that like the the playing field still needs to be leveled at the end of the day and that should be the outcome especially because those spaces not only where oppression occurs but they have the most power to dictate standards so it's I think it's quite naive to think that even spaces that we think we have full agency of don't still operate in standards that are dictated by whiteness and people who have power so it's really important that we still think we've got to like we've got to fix like the Oscars we've got to fix the Golden Globes because at the end of the day unfortunately they're dictating what we see as gold standards and it shouldn't be that way um so yeah, I think what we've got to do is like as an individual not feel the not feel the pressure to completely take their standard as value, but still feel like that space should still value you. Like you you should be held to the same acclaim as everybody else, regardless. And then if you choose not to enter that space, you choose not to enter that space. I think that's the choice that we should be given as black people, considering that we don't have the same options as everybody else. Yeah, I think it's important for us to have our own space and also to recognise like the trickle down effect, like what Delilah was saying, from the bigger institutions and kind of the institutions that maybe the greater public would take more seriously. Like I don't really hear people talking about some of the Black Award shows in the same light they do the Oscars. So it is important that our voice is heard on all platforms. But I feel like this just isn't a new problem. Like even in 2016, do you guys remember that hashtag Oscars so white? Yeah. <laughs> and it was basically like talking about how, I don't know, I, I don't want to misquote the um, statistics, but there was basically barely any people who are black or people of colour or indigenous who have been nominated for anything. So I don't know. I just feel like it's just going to be ongoing until it's going to be endless, really. I don't, I don't know. What do you guys think? I think the pace is not quick enough as to Mm. the quantity. Like, I think it's too much now. When the Oscars started, like the first black woman to win an Oscar in 1940, she couldn't sit at the table with white people. She had to be in a different hotel in like the black only space kind of thing. So we all know these spaces weren't created for us. But if you compare the 1940s to now, the number of black actresses, actors, directors, costume designers, filmmakers, things like that, those institutions are not moving fast enough with how much there is to recognize. I don't think they're doing their job effectively. Um, Mm. And when we talk about like the concept of working twice as hard for half the reward, it's not just about like attainment in terms of like if I, what I get for working, it's also what I don't get for working kind of thing. And I think some of the people, like some of these films, they have to do nothing. Like Emily in Paris, like fair enough. The writers and stuff worked <laughs> hard. I'm not taking away from your, you know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? You, you, you've done nothing, the bare minimum and you're getting a golden globe. So ultimately like, do you not think black people would love to be in that position? of putting mm. something out that you know is subpar and there's still a chance mm. you're going to win an Oscar and award for it. Like, no yeah. way. Just that re-realisation of, like, we're still here. Like, we've come so far in terms of 
what could be selected from and we're still here yeah and that was the question I was gonna ask in terms of you know you were speaking about it's what I don't get that you also need to think about in terms of how that links to opportunity like do you think the Oscars so white or like the Grammy nominations or the Golden Globes are so white because there aren't as many opportunities for black people to be in these spaces I don't even think it's just these spaces. I think it's just in general, mm-hmm. black people aren't given leadership opportunities that often. It's I read the statistic and it's like black women represent 13.7% of the US population, but only 1.3% of senior management and 2.2% of Fortune 500 boards, which just shows you how much of the population isn't being represented in leadership. And even when I was reading up about when black women and I assume black men as well are put in these leadership positions, they're often given uh, the term is glass cliff assignments. So they're risky assignments with the greater risk of failure. More than 35% of these assignments um, are extremely tough and they're given to black leaders. So even when you're put in that position and that isn't, isn't obviously at the Oscars or anything, it's just like your average Joe at a big company you're not really given the same opportunities as your white counterparts and your white peers so yeah I mean it's just exhausting but yeah it is because I think like when my mum growing up if my mum ever said that to me it wasn't just about what I had to do but it was about what I wouldn't be given so what I might have to make for myself and I think that's also opportunities also extends to state support in terms of like benefits we might not see, like resources we might not see. So everything you kind of have to make your way. Um, but I think we have seen an increase in like more um, black people behind and in front of the screen. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that's why the statistics are so um like so frustrating for me because before at least they had the excuse that like well they're not there so we can't give them the awards but like <laughs> we about now like now come on come up with something better I don't know um but I think yeah access to opportunities I think is one of the biggest provisions that's not discussed when it comes to issues around race and social mobility you can work hard at everything you're given but if some things just are held back from you and they're out of your reach what can you do like and it's the same thing with nepotism like I can't help it that I might Mm. not know somebody here within Mm. this industry because this industry is predominantly white I can do all the internships in the world but if I don't have that I don't have that where does that leave me at the end of the day um so I think it goes back to like what Dom says about institutions needing to accept responsibility and I think like the Oscars like made pledges and all this stuff like really what have they done since we've seen the increase in the gold standard of like um black centered work like what like (laughs) what really has happened I think last year only um Cynthia Erivo I think she won best actress for um for Harriet at the last Oscars and then obviously Parasite won best film and it was like the first ever non-English um film to win best film <laughs> like every other film has been um English speaking films but those were the only two kind of like major wins for non-white people even after 
all of the movements and stuff so yeah I don't really know how much they mean it and I think like I said it's about the boards like I think the Oscars still still have a board that's like 94% like white so if at the end of the day you can make all those pledges but the people you're putting in the positions of the power are still white and they're going to have a certain voting pattern then we're going to have the same problem I was going to go and ask in terms of opportunity what do you think about quotas it's the same thing like with affirmative action do you think like where do we go from here the situation that we're in is quite dire uh, in terms of recognizing black creatives uh, for their achievements so do we set quotas um I f- it's so difficult to think about solutions because it's like oh we can have our own awards but that's still not us getting an oscar or a grammy oh we could set a quota but then that kind of then it's that oh am i getting the grammy because i'm yeah. getting the quota or am i getting the grammy because i think it like because it's actually good um and i think yeah it's like where do we kind of go from here and honestly I'm at a loss like I don't know if you guys have any ideas (laughs) same because I don't know if a quota is like like a vehicle for tokenism so yeah I just but then it's like at the same time if I'm getting an Oscar do I care so I think you care if you get an Oscar trust me (laughs) why are you joking (laughs) um I think they need to subvert subvert the people that are in power and make sure those who hold the power everything is equitable number one and I don't know quotas is difficult because like I I think it was like last year the VMAs were like okay we'll make a k-pop category and then people were like that's still racist you can't just create a k-pop category kind of thing so I think like doing it right <laughs> maybe and not just saying yeah. like, like the, the urban, urban category and I think that's what the weekend said like he's fed up of like he makes records and they're not even in the hip-hop and r&b genre but he'll always win in the hip-hop and r&b mm. genre because yeah. they they've like urbanized those categories so it's like well y'all mm. wanted awards here you go have the same award every year you can only win r&b and hip-hop um so I think it's like completely across the board because that's the thing with quotas right when they'll say but you guys do win awards but then it's the same kind of things over and over again that do limit the concepts of what like what black success looks like also does anyone know what the what's the mark sheet saying like, does anyone know? No one knows. How, they don't make these what, things public. What is the public. standard? How are we testing whether something is successful or not? Like, <laughs> I'd like to know what <laughs> the answers are. Like, I just think it's so convoluted. Like, the, the process, it must, it can only be air signs <laughs> in the Grammys it, board. There's literally no, there's no structure. Just what do I feel like today? I feel <laughs> I'm feeling very like I want to uphold the structures of whiteness today. It always seems to be the mood. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. Making public what, how they pick the criteria, changing the boards, because I don't understand how you can have 94%. There's, I think it was like in 2012 when Oscar So White came out, it was like 6,000 voting members, 94% of them were white. 
Of Who are they even? In it. I've never heard of one of them. I really want to know. So, you know, I think we really do know where the problem is. <laughs> they just don't want to do nothing about it. Um, but yes. So, in conclusion, let's burn it all down. <laughs> start again. Start from scratch. <laughs> We've been here yeah. before. Yeah, I mean, literally. For once, my whole thing is like not burn it down, just level the damn playing field. Like you don't even have to take everything out. Why don't you just make everything level and just actually want to fix these spaces? You know, like they're obviously not going to get rid of the Oscars, but you clearly have a systemic problem. People are telling you year on year, Mm -hmm. you can't be having like 5% of your awards going to BIPOC people and then say that everything's cool. <laughs> That's not okay. Like, I'm sorry. So, yeah, I think they just need to fix it, but fix it properly. All people boycott. Mm. But, That's like, boycott the does nothing, though. No, it's the white like, people should boycott. Oh, the oh, white people should. I was going to say sometimes they do for the Grammys. Cancelled. But this is the space for allies, like, because all of these individuals have such massive platforms. And if you can speak out because it impacts you individually, I think you can speak out because it impacts people systemically. Like, you really should. Um, if Beyonce can do it, she'll <laughs> do it. <laughs> what are your closing thoughts then? Yeah, I think recalibration and liberation are the two things I wanted to say but with the concept of working twice as hard I think until the world is equal it's going to be unfortunate burden of blackness but it should not be a burden carried by black people that they Mm -hmm. feel it's their responsibility for why it exists I think those in power our white counterparts need to accept responsibility for the fact that we feel that way in education in the workplace in everywhere um, Mm -hmm. and that it's not okay And when it comes to awards, I'm all for people checking out and saying, if you're not going to be inclusive, I'm out. But I think we still need to make those spaces inclusive. So black people are valued to the same level as everybody. That's all I got to say. Yeah, I think the the whole concept of the burden of working twice as hard for just as much or half as much needs to really be thought about in the lens, not not l- looking at the individual, but looking at why the systems in place perpetuate that um, thought process. Um, my ending comments for this episode are basically, I think it's really easy to frame the work twice as hard theory as a branch of meritocracy however I just think it's really important that people understand that it's not us working twice as hard to get as much it's us literally having to work twice as hard to get the bare minimum as black people mm-hmm. so even though it sounds like we're super like capitalist almost and like oh if you um work really hard you're going to be successful we're not saying that we're saying it's important for us to even get the bare minimum as our white peers um, and on that bombshell, <laughs> my, <laughs> my quote is, while nearly two out of three white people make it into the middle class by middle age, according to economic expert Isabel Sahil, that number drops to just three out of 10 for black people. For many African-Americans like the Obamas, being twice as good as paid off. But for the millions who continue to confront both, both racial and economic oppression, simply encouraging folks to work harder 
while refusing to address the systemic hurdles that impede their success won't cut it either mm-hmm. and that is a quote from Brittany Danielle and that article will be linked in our resources roadmap coming out after this episode <laughs> just want to hammer home Mel's point about the fact that we're not encouraging people to work super hard like mm-hmm. the crazy capitalists on YouTube who yeah. <laughs> say I get 48 hours of work done in 12 hours <laughs> and that's why I'm rich like Jeff Bezos <laughs> Jeff Bezos today he's like I get eight hours sleep I do all my work in the morning um, and I don't answer emails after 6 p.m I'm like that's, that's not what you're, you're a modern day you're slave driver. Stealing money from people <laughs> and people can't even take pee breaks in your factory. So obviously sleep at night. Yeah, love to I mean, know. eight hours as well. <laughs> Must be nice. Must be nice. <laughs> can't imagine. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. We publish episodes every second Thursday. You can follow us on Spotify and find us on Instagram at diaspora underscore collective and on Twitter at diaspora Pod, where you can find our follow-up resource roadmaps for each episode and other posts related to issues close to our hearts. Also, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us increase our reach. <laughs> yes it would but we'd really appreciate it (laughs) don't know why Dominique said it like that but we would weird flex but (laughs) um and also give Michaela Cole her flowers like she truly deserves it I may destroy you is a beautiful piece of work um and no shade to Emily in Paris but Michaela did your thing